Hey guys, welcome to Telling the Told Untold. My name is Tsuho. So before we go straight into today's case, I have some really exciting news and a word from Gerard. So, boop. Hello, Tsecho and your viewers. My name is Gerard Abiskagni. I was the head of the South African Police Services Profile Unit called the Investigative Psychology Section for 14 and a half years, and also the author of the Profiler Diaries from the case files of a police psychologist. So an informer told me about your YouTube channel, Telling the Told and Untold, and I went and had a look. So I was really excited to see that you had actually discussed my book, and I think as far as I know, two episodes so far about uh, chapters from my book. Um, thanks very much for that. So I decided I'm going to give you a signed copy for yourself, uh, and also to say thank you, uh, two copies for your viewers, which you can decide how you want to give those away. I'll also sign those to those two winners um, and we'll get those books off to them as a, a big thank you for what you've been doing for true crime in South Africa and of course helping me uh, get my book out there um, amongst a wide range of people. So thanks for your interest in South African true crime stories. Uh, we have a lot of really amazing cases here in South Africa and it's really nice to see people in South Africa taking an interest in those cases and also seeing the good work that's been done by the police and the victims who came forward and of course the prosecutors. So to all your viewers, if you like what you heard so far on Seho's channel, please consider buying my book. There's obviously a lot of little details in here that uh, you might not get from the YouTube channel itself. Um, you get all the insights as to what it was like working in this unit and the ups and downs of dealing with these types of cases. So I think you really enjoy the book. Uh, so take care and be safe. From me, Gerard Lubbeskartney. So basically, I am having my first ever giveaway and I'm really excited. Um, I really didn't think about this, but like what requirements are needed and stuff. But basically, just be subscribed, like my videos and yeah, have watched my profile diary videos and commented. And yeah, <laughs> I think that's it. It will be a random selection and the winners will be chosen mid-September. So yeah. In March 2011, in just the span of eight days, an axe murderer went around killing four men and further injuring two others. This is the Brighton Beach Axe Murders, episode three of the Profiler Diaries. On the 20th of March 2011, was in Mpangeni and was attending his brother's funeral. He received a phone call from his employer and he was basically just asking if he'd be able to work the next day. And Tempinkosi agreed and in the afternoon he left and was on his way home which was Durban. At around quarter past nine that evening, he called his girlfriend, Mabel Glamini, and told her that he was almost home. He just stopped at the garage and asked if there's something that um, he should bring home. And she just asked him to come home with some bread. At 20 to 10 that evening, a man, Mr. Donnelly, was on his way home when he saw a man like standing and someone else lying on the pavement. So he, at first he thought they were just fighting, but as he he drove closer he saw this man was holding an axe and was hacking away at this body on the floor he slowly drove past went home as soon as he got home he called the police and then made his way back to the scene 
He said that this man was, dre was dressed in black tracksuit pants, a black t-shirt, as well as a black cap. When he arrived on the scene, police officers soon arrived too, and he told them what he had seen. Around the same time that he saw what was happening, another man too was driving past, and then at first he saw a man standing, and he thought that he was just like hitting a snake and as he got closer he was like no man this object is a bit bigger than a snake so he thought it was a dog and as he was literally like right by the scene he saw that no this man was actually hacking away at a human body so he drove a little bit further stopped his car called the police then he made a u-turn to go back to the scene and he said when he got back there the man wasn't there anymore but he did see who he who he believed to be the killer getting into a small silver or gray car the scene was really gruesome and bloody. Tempinkosi's body was lying on the side of the pavement and his head was barely attached to the rest of his body. It was just hanging on by small pieces of skin about 11 meters away lying in the middle of the street next to his cap was the bread that Mabel had asked him to come home with. First responders arrived on the scene at around 10 p.m. and were done within the hour. And around the same time that they arrived on the scene, Mabel knew something was wrong because Tempinkosi hadn't arrived home yet and the garage wasn't that far. So she just knew something was wrong. So she decided to call him. And this is when a police officer answered the phone and just told her that no, they're with Tempinkosi, but they'll bring him home like soon and immediately she knew something was wrong and she started crying about 15 minutes later at quarter past 10 she called his phone again and another police officer answered the phone and said the same thing and she immediately started crying told them that they're lying and dropped the phone after this, she went to her employer, so I believe she lived on the same property as her employer, and told him what was going on and how she believed something bad had happened to Tempinkosi and that he was dead. After this, they got into the car and drove to the police station, and on their way to the police station, they actually passed the crime scene, and they saw that a body was lying on the pavement with the foil blanket lying over it. And Mabel said she immediately knew that it was Tim Ngozi, but they still proceeded to the police station. Once they got to the police station, the officers that were there told them to go to the scene that they had just passed. So they went to the scene, and by the time they arrived, um, the mortuary van that comes to like collect the body had two also arrived, and the foil blanket that was on Tim Ngozi had been removed, and Mabel saw his clothes, saw the clothes that he was wearing and already knew that it was him. On the 22nd of March at around 20 to 12 p.m. Temba Putelezi was on his way home when he found the decapitated body of a man in the traffic circle. The man was wearing a bright yellow shirt, blue jeans and had on one shoe. He immediately called the police and once police arrived on the scene they just went around the nearby houses asking questions and this is when they found the man's wife. She identified the man as Paula's Changwa and she had been married to him for 30 years. She says the last time she saw him was at quarter to 2 p.m. when he was on his way to KFC where he worked and yeah, that was the last time she had seen him. Later that evening, a homeless man was digging through a municipal 
municipality um does when those ones you find like on the side of the road he was looking for food when he came across a head he went to the police station told them what they had found and the investigating officer um was with um Paula's wife at the time so at around 2 a.m they went to the dustbin and she identified his head which is so traumatic because I don't know why they would do that why would you why would you like why I'm so confused coincidentally enough the bin that his head was found in had a KFC advertisement at the particular KFC that he worked at after the second murder, a task team was found and the first agenda that they had was just to go around the neighborhood and just go around asking people questions and see if they had seen something. And this is when they found one of their first witnesses one of their first witnesses, and her name was Nombusa Hadebe. She says that she was too scared to come forward. She was pregnant at the time as well. So she says that that night she was just about to go to bed when she heard shouting and like something like a steel thing hitting the ground. And after this, she went to the window to go see what was going on. And this is when she saw um, a big, like a um, <laughs> that's when she went to the window and she saw a man who was shaven was like bald was shaven and had a big physique and she says that this man was basically like hitting at something on the ground and afterwards this man went to his car came out with an orange plastic bag picked something up got back into his car and drove away the next witness was a security guard. So police officers looked at the scene of the crime and noticed that there was building, there was a building in the distance and assumed that someone from there probably saw what had happened and they were correct. The security guard said that that night he heard someone screaming, oh mother, and then he just tried to peek and see what was going on. And this is where he saw a man lying on the floor and another man standing holding something that he thought was a stick. And then he says that nearby there was a silver car with the driver's door open and it was stand, it was just there, like it wasn't moving, like it was off. It was stationary, sorry, it was stationary. And then afterwards, this guy got into the car, then drove down the street, afterwards made a U-turn, drove back, stopped the car, repeated this process about two, three times, and then got out the car, picked something up, went back into his car and finally left. As the task team was investigating, they found out that there was a survivor from the axe murderer and his name was Kangeleni Felix Nduli and he says that he was attacked on the 22nd of March, the same day as Paul's and fortunately he survived. So he says at around half past 10 that evening, he was on his way home from Sasko when he saw a car, he said it was like a silver gray pugat i don't know how to pronounce it properly with eastern cape number plates so this car was driving behind him like slowly then it passed him and the guy looked at him 
Then the guy made a U-turn and then stopped the car behind him. And then he said the man got out holding a plastic and it looked like the plastic had something heavy inside of it. He says that then this guy started speaking to him like he knew him. He spoke to him in Zulu, but he says this guy's Zulu sounded like it was Joburg Zulu, not like KZN Zulu. Um, and that's what he noticed. And then afterwards, this man accused him of sleeping with his daughter and having given Given her AIDS. Afterwards, the man pulled out an axe from the plastic bag, aimed it at the guy's head and threw it. But fortunately enough, Kangeleni um, ducked just in time and the axe hit the right side of his ribcage instead. Somehow he managed to run and this guy started following him, but he did manage to escape. Kangeleni managed to help them um, compile a identikit and he said that this man was between 33 to 35 years old. He was wearing black or navy tracksuit pants, khaki cap, which is I think like flowers, like florally and stuff, and white tackies. He also said that the man was left-handed. On the 23rd of March at 3 a.m., Sihim Tongo was going to bed when he heard someone screaming outside, Haibobuti. And then after that, he went to the window to go see what was going on. And this is where he saw a man like standing holding an axe with um, a yellow grip to it and um, like hacking away at someone on the ground and he also could hear like the axe hitting the ground and hitting the person's body he then called his wife to like come see what was going on and then after that he like tried going outside to go stop everything that was going on but unfortunately he managed to open the door but they couldn't find the key for the security gate like you know you have those like burglar bars and then the door so they couldn't find the key for that thing so like he tried scaring this man but this man didn't seem to like be phased and then he finally screamed like what are you doing and that's when the man finally looked phased and then he kind of just like stopped what he was doing stood up and then walked away Mtrongo then called 10111 and as soon as police officers arrived, he told them what he had seen and said that he'd never forget that man's face. He said that he was tall and well-built and looked to be like in his 30s. The victim was identified as Simon Ngiti and he had multiple wounds to his face, head and neck and his right ear was also sliced off. Like half of it was sliced off. The task team then managed to find another victim that survived the axe murderer and his name was Sianda Emmanuel Kumalo and he says on the 21st of March at around 22 10 he was on his way home after having visited his father so he was walking and then he saw this silver car like driving slowly and then this guy stopped his car on the side of the road got out and started following him Sianda then decided to start walking in the middle of the road and then this guy too started like following him walking in the middle of the road so as this guy was following him he managed to grab Sianda's collar and then Sianda kind of just like got like his hand off of him managed to run and this is when the man took out an axe from a plastic bag and threw it at Sianda and it hits him in his back but he did manage to escape he says that this man didn't say anything to him just 
besides the one thing he said, which was, come back here. He said that the man was tall, well-built, dressed in black, and he spoke Zulu. As the task team was investigating, they received a phone call from one victim's sister, and she says that she had heard about the the axe murderings that were going on, and she said it sounded similar to what had happened to her brother the previous year in 2010. She says that on the 26th of November, her brother Mkheli Tolo was on his way home. He was walking on Sterling Road when a silver grey car um was driving behind him slowly the car then stopped next to him a guy got out and in zulu asked him if he knew someone by the name zama metheli said no and then the guy got out of his car and started hitting him in the head with a baton that he had after this he um fell unconscious and when he finally woke up a couple of seconds later the man was on top of him and still assaulting him a neighbor saw what was happening and managed to scream and get the guy to stop assaulting Mehli. and then after this he managed to run home and once he got home he like told him what happened then fell on the couch and fell unconscious again and then they took him to the hospital and then when he woke up he said he managed to get the registration number which is the license plate as well as the make and model of the car the car was a silver gray chevrolet avio after Metheli was discharged, he went to the police station and opened a case. He said that the man was tall, was a black man, and he was really like well built and said that he was he had the body of like a wrestler or a rugby player. Eight days after this man attacked him, he was at the spa, like the local spa there in the community, and he literally saw the same car with this man sitting inside of it. On the 28th of March, the task team managed to locate a suspect. Because Mekile managed to write down the registration number, they were able to put it up in the system. And after this, they saw that it belonged to Mrs. Litlaku. And after this, they went to where she lived. And they basically were just like observing the house before they approached it or did anything. And as they were observing the house, they asked the neighbors if there was like a black man like tall well-built shaven that lived there and they said yes and this is when they knew that they had their suspect so after keeping the house under observation for a couple of hours they decided to approach the house so a couple of officers went to the front door and two others went um, at the back so while these people were knocking on the front door and these two officers were at the back there was another house like you know like a back room like flat type thing that that's what was there so they said that they saw this big man walk out and they were kind of like intimidated because he was like very big buff well built like all the other witnesses had described and fortunately enough for them he didn't try and do anything and apparently when they tried handcuffing him his wrists were so big the handcuffs didn't fit so they had to resort to like those foot ones those ankle ones yeah this man was identified as pindile joseph jr in Zongwanda. 
After they had arrested Pindile, they told his mother, Mrs. Lidlaka, why her son was being arrested. And they asked where the Chevrolet was. And apparently it had been, it had been involved in a car accident a couple of days before. So they didn't have it, but they did have a car rental from Avis. And this car was an Opal Corsa. So they asked Mrs. Litlaka if they could search the house. And she's like, why do you want to search my house? You're not going to do that. You need a search warrant. And the officer basically explained that they're still going to come with the search warrant tomorrow. But this just saves time, makes everything easier. And eventually she agreed. She signed a paper that said like she knew what was, what was going on. And she was very hostile towards the police officers. And she even told them, you know what, just search my room first. I need to go to bed. I have work tomorrow. During their search of their house, outside they found a dog kennel and inside they found something that looked like rotten meat and axe as well as blood-stained clothing. They asked Mrs. Vitlaka if they had a dog and she said they hadn't had a dog since 2010. Okay, so now I'm going to read you everything else they found in the dog kennel. They found a Vitrix hand handle axe with a yellow wooden handle. It was 30 to 35 centimeters in length with a steel blade that was 12 to centimeters to 15 centimeters in length. The blade was pitted at the end and sharp. There was a pair of red, black, and silver Nike trainers with the toe cap missing, black plastic trash bag, pair of blue jeans, red and black cannon cap, a pair of white socks, an orange municipality black plastic bag, not black plastic bag, <laughs> a orange municipality, municipal plastic bag. Yes, as well as green plastic bags, green lock sleeve jersey, a pair of black and white trainers, as well as a white plastic container. After this, they summoned a dog to just like go through the house and see if they could um detect any blood or semen. And the dog did the dog did pick up on a ton of blood in the flat that Pindila lived outside like outside the main house and they found this blood in his end suite. They found blood outside the bath on the tiles um, by the shower, that little step you take as you get into the shower on the bathroom mat. There was literally just blood everywhere and it was later identified as female blood. An unidentified female. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. The rental car from Avis was examined and they saw that the boot had been damaged. There was blood stain on the right front door as well as the back seat that was that was directly behind the driver's seat. Pindile said that the reason why the car had blood was because he had transported a couple of people that were involved in a car accident convenient. So who was Pindile? Pindile was a 33 year old man at the time and he lived with his mother and a domestic helper since 2005. He attended Settlers Agricultural High School in Limpopo and matriculated in 1997. Thereafter he went to Tswane University of Technology to study sport management and marketing until 2001. At the time of his arrest he was unemployed. 
He had also played for the SA Barbarians rugby team in 1996 and he was one of the first black players to be contracted by the Blue Bulls Rugby Union between 1998-2001. He was such a good player and after a break from his rugby career from 2009 to 2010, he approached Barnard van Gran. Um, who was the CEO of the Blue Bulls because he wanted to make a comeback. But Van Grant said after Pindile approached him, he disappeared again after that. His mother was a law lecturer and his father was a former diplomat. Apparently, Pindile's mental health started rapidly declining in the few years before the murders took place. When he was arrested, he did have a five-year-old son, but despite the claims that he had made to his victims, he did not have a daughter. In December of 2009, he was diagnosed at RK Khan Hospital with with schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. It appeared as though he didn't take his medication and was readmitted there in July 2010. And throughout July 2010 to February 2011, he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And at some point in 2000, and I think it was in 2010, he did escape. Like he was being transported in an ambulance and then he managed to like get out of it and just make a run for it. Three days after Pindili was arrested on the 1st of April, a man was like taking a walk with his dog when his dog started like barking and trying to drag him to a nearby railway line and he was like like he kept trying to pull his dog back but you know his dog was really persistent so he just went along with his dog and about 20 meters further down the line he found a body this body was of a black adult male and he had been decapitated. The smell was really bad which means the body had probably been there for quite a while and was in its early stages of decomposition. The victim's head had been smashed to pieces and an autopsy determined that his body had been there around the same time um, as Pindile's murder spree. This man was found about 500 meters away from where Pindile's house was and he was found with his pants by his ankles wearing a white top and he still had his shoes on as well. Unfortunately, this man has never been identified to this day but it is strongly believed that he is one of Pindile's victims because of the way that he was murdered and it's just like well-known belief that maybe he was on his way home or something and he just decided to take a leak which is why his pants were found by his ankles but everything else but he still had all his other clothing so like kind of like he was kind of caught off guard after Pindile's arrest one of the prosecutors said that they had a docket and they were still waiting to see whether they could like take it further and the main suspect of this case was no other than Pindili. This case involved the kidnapping and rape of a woman on the 28th of November 2010. This woman was on her way 
to Durban from Gwangoma and was visiting her sister. So when she arrived in Durban and she was walking, she said that this car stopped next to her and then this man like greeted her like he knew her and basically just offered her a ride and I think at first she was very hesitant about it but he really insisted that no don't worry I'll take you along those lines and finally she agreed and she got into the car so as in the car and they're driving he passed her destination so she kept telling him like to stop the car because they passed and he just like kept quiet and then afterwards he took her hand put it on his groin and basically just asked have you ever slept with a man that's what you asked and then she said no and then afterwards he's like well you're gonna find out today how it feels like can you imagine can you imagine that so afterwards they're driving driving get to his home he parks the car in the garage and takes her to his flat that's like remember he's like that's outside the main house so they get there they get into his bedroom and then he then locks the door and he kept her captive for three days and throughout those three days he would constantly sexual sexually assault her and she says that like throughout these three days his mood would fluctuate like some days he was very kind and soft towards her and then other times he would just burst and basically start swearing at her and just asking her like who she's sleeping with and telling her how he's going to kill her on the third day which was the first of december this woman um asked Pindile if she could go home just so that she could get a couple of clothes and at first he was very reluctant but eventually he did agree and after that he told her just stay in the room quickly he'll be back just now and after he left for a couple of minutes she took this opportunity to search through his bedroom and this is where she found his ID as well as a debonair slip so throughout those three days, um, one of the days he ordered Debonair's pizza and I think it was for delivery because it had his address on it. So she took these two things as evidence and eventually came back to the house and then to the bedroom and then he was like, okay, we can go now. So they drove to the apartment building of flats. He stayed in the car and she got out. So as she got out and she was like climbing up the stairs, she saw one of her friends that she knew and this person was named Sia. And fortunately Sia had a pen and paper on them and she then asked Sia to like take down the registration number as well as the make and model of the car. Then she asked Sia to go tell the security guards not to let that car in. And this Usia went to go do this and then she ran to her pastor and then told her pastor what happened. And then he took her to the police station where she then opened a case against Pindili. The trial began in November 2012 and due to a number of delays, it went on for about two years. But eventually sentencing began in December. On the 9th of December 2014, Pindi Lindzongwana was sentenced to five life terms of imprisonment for the four murders and the multiple rapes of the female victim. She wasn't named throughout the book and he also received a further 14 years for the other crimes that he had committed. I know you guys are probably wondering whether or not his mental health was taken into account um, throughout his trial and it was 
and at like during the sentencing the judge basically said to Pindile that he could see that this man had no remorse he was laughing at the female victim when she was up on the stand recounting what had happened to her he literally just looked like he didn't care and he was very well aware about what he was doing when he murdered all his victims and had kidnapped this woman and this is the main reason they say that he knew what he was doing and knew it was wrong was because he had taken the time to hide all of the clothes that he had had, um, hide the axe and yeah, he was well aware about what he was doing and knew it was wrong.